Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brendan Porter. With families and day jobs, we know it's hard to find time to get out there with your camera. So Brendan and I joined together and made the commitment to go out consistently and build up our landscape and astrophotography portfolios. We live in Utah and are lucky to have so many beautiful landscapes all around us. Not only do we have five national parks right here in Utah, but we are only a day or less drive away from 30 other national parks. So we created PhotogAdventures.com, this podcast, and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog adventure of your own. It's episode 115 and we are joined today with an awesome guest, guys. And before we get into it, we really want to thank you patrons who have been supporting the channel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you guys are out there loving the content, we haven't heard enough about things that maybe you want to talk about. Make sure you inform us. If there's people you wish we'd interview, people you wish we'd talk to or any types of photography out there. We just did a macro photography lesson on our yep. gear time. Yeah. And maybe some of you are interested in us talking more about macro. Hit us up. Yeah, we can find people that have really amazing macro uh, galleries on you know, 500px or Flickr or something like that and pull these people in to interview them. Yeah, that'd be a blast. Yeah. So hit us up, guys. Really appreciate all your support. And we're stoked to have an awesome guest today. So I'm not going to waste any time on our side. We want to get right into it. Okay. Today we're joined by Joshua Cripps. Um, that's a C-R-I-P-P-S, right? Yes. Not yes. to be confused with yeah. K-R-I-P-T-S. That guy, oh. Joshua Cripps, man, he's my, he's my nemesis. He's oh, really? <laughs> no, but wouldn't that be funny if somebody had such a similar name? Although I did, I did live in L.A. for uh, about seven and a half years, and every time I told somebody that my name was Cripps, it got a great laugh. Yeah, mm-hmm. great laugh. I'm sure that you did. <laughs> That's what you said, the L.A. area you've lived in. We walked in the house, we scuffed off our shoes, and we made the Brennan made the classic joke about, oh, he's not Joshua Bloods or something. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, I bet he's heard that joke a yeah, thousand times. Yeah, it's not new. Especially in California. And you specifically <laughs> lived in the L.A. area, so. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah and I lived, uh, I went to USC, so I lived in South Central, so. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to go to USC. I was looking into them for film school. It was only going to cost me something like 20 plus grand a semester. Oh, hey, yeah. No, no big deal. Uh, oh, it could be I mean, expensive. US dollars or Vietnamese dong? Because <laughs> Jeez. Vietnamese dong, man, that would have been a steal. <laughs> <laughs> have you been to or Vietnam? Pesos. You know the currency, the dong. <laughs> so have you been there? You travel the world. I have been to Vietnam, and I think to date that is my favorite currency name that I've come across. (laughs) It'll be 20 dong. You got it. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to go to Vietnam. I had a job offer in Da Nang, or Da Nang, Vietnam. I was going to move out there. Mm. My wife at the time was not stoked about the idea. She didn't like it. (laughs) But it would have been a really cool job Mm. working for Gameloft, a company that likes to steal other ideas and make a nice Mm. cheaper version of it Mm -hmm. and put it out there. You would have been a pirate? Yeah, I would have been yeah. a video game video pirate. Game. Professional pirate. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Leading a team of people who actually would have been shorter than me. Aaron <laughs> King's five foot five frame would have been a giant among them. <laughs> Can I make a suggestion, man? I'm not I'm not super tall. I'm five nine, but I got a pair of cowboy boots mm. and they got a they got a solid three inch heel. Three inch <laughs> heel? Stripper cowboy you can't boots? Tell. You can't tell. They're just built up solid boots. Uh, but they got a three-inch heel, man. Puts me right up at six foot. It's pretty <laughs> sweet. Nice, nice. Cowboy Aaron 
is yeah, about wanna, to begin. <laughs> you want to start kissing that five eight man? It's a beautiful thing. Those boots. So I'm losing my hair too. So I'm gonna go to like a date with a future date, and I'll be five foot eight with a hat on, and all the surprises will come in the future on a second or third date. She's like, "Wait a second, you're shorter than me, and where's all your hair?" Oh, this has all been false advertising. <laughs> so I'm kid- I'm interrupting all of the intro of Joshua Chris. Hey, you so know it's a go. good it's a pretty good intro so far though. <laughs> So I just want to mention that Joshua has traveled on the world. We've already covered that. Um, but he's been featured by companies like from Nikon, um, Outdoor Photographer, Petapixel, Popular Photography, Enduro, Landscape Photo Magazine, uh, Ocean Conservancy, and he's got some videos on Flern. Yeah, I noticed you had Flern on there on your bio. I wonder what can we do to get Photog Adventures logo as featured on Photog Adventures. Let's do it. Just send me a, you know, a small square logo and it's gone it's good to go yes okay i will do that (laughs) absolutely that would be a huge honor (laughs) so is it just you have videos on flern or that you produce or do you have something to do with the creation of the website so what happened was back in the day they were looking for uh contributing writers Mm -hmm. and so i i sent them a sample article this was this was a long time ago this was maybe 2009 2010 Okay. And so I just sent them a sample of my writing describing some Photoshop technique, and they were like, heck, we want this guy to, to write for us. So I wrote three or four articles for them and uh, ended up becoming uh, personal friends with Aaron Nace uh, oh. through that process. And so every now and again, you know, if they're doing a feature on landscape or something like that, they'll, uh, they'll throw some of my work up there. I haven't actually, I don't think I personally have any videos on there, but I do have some old articles okay. from back in the day. Okay. That's awesome. Cool. The interview and things like that. You get some good traffic to your workshops with that? Is that a pretty great avenue? You know what? It's not. Uh, not <laughs> because Flirton doesn't have a ton of awesome traffic, but because it's a different audience. You know, people mm. are mostly going to Flirton to figure out how to create these totally surreal oh. dreamscape composite Photoshop masterpieces. Oh, right. Okay. You know, and so I don't know that there's much overlap between that and people who are like, cool, now that I know everything about Photoshop, where can I go find a landscape workshop in New Zealand? <laughs> right, yeah. right. That's a good point. Yeah, it probably doesn't cross over too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't have any more to the intro, I want to segue off of him saying New Zealand. Okay. Because specifically, looking at your bio and looking at your info on Google, you use the image of that Wakana. What is the name of that tree that's in the water? Is it Wakana area? I'm saying it's it wrong. It's not Wakanda. <laughs> Wakanda. No, Wakanda that's forever. That's a magical, that's a fantasy place in the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, it's, uh, it's Wanaka. Wanaka. Wanaka the I yeah. put the K in the end the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, the famous Wanaka Willow there, which is now, uh, I think, even more famous than uh, maybe Mesa Arch. I'm not sure. Wow, that's oh, crazy to really? think. Does that mean you have to go and fight crowds like Mesa Arch? You do. Yeah, there's a mm. lot more space to spread out on the on the beach there um, on Lake Wanaka. You can get, you know, last time I was there, we were there with a workshop group. And I think we counted 120 people <gasps> on the shoreline at sunrise lined up to get yeah, that that's shot. That's way bigger than Mesa Arch. Yeah. yeah, huge. And, you know, it's interesting to see how much it's blown up. The first time that I personally photographed it was in 2012. Mm-hmm. And I was the only person there at sunrise. And really? Prime. Prime golden fall foliage, mm. uh, perfect conditions. 
and not a soul in sight except for myself. And now, you know, six years later, you got 120 I people. I miss those days. <laughs> wow. I mean, we got into this at the wrong time. We go to these places and they're just all burned up. People crawling blocked all over off. the place. Yeah. <laughs> Iceland Legal is. campfires everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's either big tourist lines or it's blocked off because people ruined it from last year, the year before. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's just, yeah. So, right here in my photography bucket list, my landscape photography bucket list, I need and want to get out to New Zealand for Milky Way yeah. photography yeah. and for landscape photography. Yeah. So, I want to ask you Monica. if you traveling the whole world, doing international workshops, being a guy who's t- taking his camera to beautiful places, help us out. What are three places that you say we need to add to our bucket list that we make sure we go before we die? Okay, that's actually a super easy question. My, <laughs> okay. my top three places are the High Sierra backcountry here mm-hmm. in California where mm-hmm. I live, uh, New Zealand, especially the South Island, throughout the Southern Alps, and Fiordland. Mm-hmm. And then the place that's on my personal bucket list is China. Oh, what part mm-hmm. of China? Just all of China? Guilin? Every single square meter of China, I want to see it. No, I, honestly, I don't know where the to go. The dirty alley behind the, cha- the the castle in Beijing. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's probably some sweet street photography oh, options yeah. there, you know? So, so yeah. China, High Sierra, and New Zealand. Wow. Okay. okay. You mentioned specifically the fjordlands in New Zealand. Start there. What are the fjordlands? What's that area famous for? Is it like Norway Fjord? It is. Yeah. So, basically, there's this incredibly corrugated southwestern part of the South Island of New Zealand that is dramatically carved out by glaciers mm-hmm. and has resulted in this insanely dramatic landscape where you have these uh, flat valleys, you know, that are at maybe 500 or 1,000 feet elevation, and then they go straight up to mountains that are eight, nine, 10,000 feet. Wow. And because they get so much weather, and it's such cold weather coming right off of Antarctica, it... Oh. it yeah, it's just constantly raining and snowing there. There's, oh, okay. there's, I don't know how many, but there are a lot of glaciers uh, still carving the landscape. And, of course, as you get out toward the ocean, those glaciers have created these huge fjords. Um, and you have places like Milford Sound where the mountains go from sea level to uh, 5,000 feet a mile straight up. Whoa. With, there is no... You know, there's no foothills. There's no breaks. It's yeah. just sea level Instant. to a mile high instantly. <laughs> That's even more dramatic than Iceland was on that edge when we yeah. hit that spot where it goes up into the ocean and then here's this tall mountain. Mm-hmm. It was it was mind-boggling there was lots, to see like that. There's like a couple of miles in between that point. Yeah, and and so. so if someone's thinking about going to Fjordland, you've been there yourself or is it a bucket list to get out too? No, I've been there probably a dozen times oh, or so. Cool. Oh, Perfect. Nice. Good. That leads I, me perfectly into the question I'd ask. You were going to say something, but I have to ask you, what do we, how do we get there? What are some of the things we need to know if we want to get out to this spot? Is it something we can do without a guide? Yeah, so Fjordland is a really cool place because the parts of it are extremely accessible. But if you want to get off the beaten path, there's a lot of that as well. Nice. So the easiest way to get there, you fly into Queenstown, which is on the South Island. And then it's about a four-hour drive, and it is one of the most scenic drives you'll ever do. Uh, and that'll take you all the way from Queenstown into Milford Sound on a paved road the entire way. You get out of your car, and you see genuinely one of the world's most spectacular sights. <laughs> nice. That's never even been on my radar, and now it's <sighs> at the top five of places that we want to get out to. Yeah, because I mean, look at that. I'm just looking at the map right now on Google Map, and you can see all these 
crazy it looks like you're zoomed in on norway it i looks know so much like that same peninsula that look nuts? of the entire yeah, look continent at that. that's the south that's the south island so <laughs> cool and then you fly into queenstown can you fly in from the united states to that point or do you have to land in auckland and then take another flight you have to land in auckland and okay. then transfer down to queenstown okay okay so quickly what kind of composition are you gathering when you're there big wide frame shots close-up shots with the telephoto lens what are you getting so my favorite kind of composition to do in Milford Sound itself is the telephoto shots because mm. the wide angles have been pounded into the earth. <laughs> They're and everywhere. With, huh? with good reason. Like, it is insanely spectacular, and you want to capture this magical grandeur uh, of this wonderful place. But there's no way that me, as a guy from California, even though I've been there a dozen times, it's pretty unlikely I'm going to get there on the day with the best atmospheric mm. conditions that he's ever seen. So a lot of the local photographers have those wide-angle shots that you just drool over. <laughs> and, and so when I get there, I don't know. I'm not that interested in trying to just out-weather everybody else. Right, you know, like, right. oh, I got the most epic sunset. That makes me the best photographer. The best I don't know. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm not really adding anything to the photography canon by taking another wide-angle shot at Milford Sound. So I love to grab that telephoto and zoom into all the different peaks and glaciers. And there's actually a couple of really beautiful waterfalls out there. Uh, one of my favorite is Sterling Falls, and it actually falls directly into the fjord itself. Nice. The only way to access the bottom of it is on a boat. And you can, you can cruise out there on a boat and photograph all these beautiful telephoto shots, these intimate landscapes, of the water crashing off the rocks, crashing off the fjord, uh, creating these fantastical sort of ghost-like figures as it bounces around. So oh, right now, cool. that's my favorite thing to do in Milford Sound. But if you get out into the rest of Fjordland, because there's a vast, vast wilderness, a lot of it's accessible by helicopter or by a, a float plane. They'll fly you into a remote lake, and then you have Ooh. to push, push your way around. What an adventure that would be. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Have you ever done that? I've done a little bit of that, not as much as I'd nearly like to, uh, but to give you sort of an example <laughs> of the kind of travel, like yeah. there's, this one, there's this one hike I want to do to a place called Lake Adelaide, and oh, I, I think it's only me. something like six miles one way, oh, Okay, and they say allow 13 hours oh, to do this hike dang. because of the density of the bush and the difficulty of staying on trail and the amount of tree branches and mud you have to contend with as you're hiking wow. around <laughs> what kind of year what kind of time of year should we consider for something like this you know i don't know that it really matters uh oh, it's uh, the the weather down there is crazy all the time <laughs> it rains two days out of three and whether you're summer or winter in fact i think it's better to go when it's raining because what happens is you have literally thousands of ephemeral waterfalls that appear right the rock there, it's all, it's all. Uh, I believe it's granite. Don't quote me on that, even though we're on the live podcast. <laughs> I won't quote um, you. It'll just be recorded and played for forever. perpetuity. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard rock. There's almost no topsoil. Um, all the trees and bushes, they only exist because they cling to each other. So when if one tree goes, they all go. They'll just create these big slips down the mountain. So what happens because of that? is any water that falls is not absorbed. There's no soil to absorb it. It simply cascades down the rocks. And so as soon as a rainstorm starts, you'll get thousands 
of ephemeral waterfalls that spring into existence. And, and these things could be two, 3,000 feet tall as they cascade down the mountains. Uh, and then as soon as the rain dries up, they disappear as well. Right. So it's really good timing when you can get it and you just take advantage of it before you leave. That's amazing. I could go this entire podcast talking about this area <laughs> of New Zealand. So I, I think know. we should definitely have Joshua back and talk about that because, dang, I not only have it on my bucket list, I'm already starting to think about going there within a year. It's like the southern end of like, you know, the pharaohs. It's almost like the mirror yes. twin of it, like on the other other side of the world, you know. And I just don't hear described. about it all that much. Yes, right. there's tons of photography already taken there. I'm not worried about being the first. But it's so massive though. I mean, yeah, it yeah. seems like the opportunity is there to feel quite an adventure. That well, sweet. sounds amazing. Be- before we're at risk of just spending 70 minutes on this, <laughs> let me ask you about China before we go into your hometown area of High Sierras, where you said every single inch of China interests you. <laughs> what would be your favorite if you could only pick one place to make sure you capture before you die? Where is it? Oh boy! Now, see, I have to admit to being pretty ignorant about okay. China. I've seen all the classic spots, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the Misty Mountains, the Avatar Mountains, and those yeah, great amazing. Yeah. Stars. All that stuff looks so cool. But the reason that I'm really, really interested in China is because. Much like the United States, it's a geographically, geologically diverse country. Yeah, it is. It's massive. Yeah. And there's so much from these these high, dry deserts to the insane mountains and the lush stuff in the south. But I know from my experiences here in the U.S. that we have all of our very well-known national parks. And if you just go, you know, a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left, you can find these places that are not in a national park. Right. That are just as beautiful. Nobody knows about them. Nobody's shooting them. And and so my theory is that China, outside of these incredibly famous places, has thousands upon thousands of, of gems waiting to be captured that nobody knows about. <laughs> True. So when you go, what kind of time are you going to give yourself? Uh, months, probably, if mm-hmm. I can organize an expedition, at least three months. There, there are a couple of photographers that I correspond with out there, uh, guys from the West who now live in China, mm-hmm. who, who do a lot of excursions and a lot of exploring in some of these remote mountains. And the photos they post of places you have never heard about. Oh, wow. They're, they're breathtaking. There's this, there's this very small circular mountain range uh, kind of in, I think it's in sort of the central south. And I'd never heard of it before this guy started posting photos of it. And it's like thousands of these needle-like daggers poking up out of the ground. And it looks wow. it looks freaking bonkers. There's this head wall that, I mean, gosh, it looks like something out of, you guys remember that movie? Um, oh, God, what was it called? <laughs> oh, Krull, Krull. You remember that? I don't that? think I saw that movie. Krull no, the no. Crow or? K-R-U-L-L. No, never even heard of it. Mm. Oh, man. So, anyway, if you're a, <laughs> you're a big sci-fi nerd and you know the movie Krull, there's these mountains that look kind of like the disappearing fortress that bounces around in that movie. Oh, mm. man. It looks nuts. So, stuff like that. Just go there and explore and see what's what. <laughs> nice. Is it too much on the spot to ask you for one or two of those names so I can check their Instagram feed? I'm really curious about what they have. Oh, Those definitely. guys that you mentioned from the West that are out there living. Yeah, yeah. Let me make sure that I've got the guy's name right. It's Kyle Oberman is his name. But let me see if... Uh, yeah, his Instagram feed. Yeah. 
Brendan all the time brings up these YouTube channels where these guys are living in China or in Japan, mm -hmm. and they have a YouTube channel talking about, okay, if you come here, here's some things that you can be wary of, you can make sure you do. Yeah, Serpent sure ZA, Serpent ZA. Yeah. Serpenza is his name, I guess, on That's the YouTube, his YouTube channel? Name, oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. I'm like, I don't know what you're saying to me. <laughs> Serpenza. And so I'm thinking of those kind of guys, and you're saying they've lived there for years, they know the area. Seems yeah. like the perfect kind of guys to follow exactly. to learn what I should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, so the guy's name is Kyle Oberman. And that's his Instagram handle as well. Cool. Oh, it's the same thing. So he's just at Kyle Oberman, one word. Awesome. Yep. Definitely going to pull him up and learn about him. Well, sweet. Let's get into the High Sierra because that's a place that Brenda and mm. I could drive next week and enjoy. We have places all up the High Sierras that we wanted to visit. Oh, yeah. We've never been to Mono Lake. We've mm -hmm, never been mm -hmm. to some of the beautiful sides. We've gone to the Yosemite side. We haven't gone to the Other side, east yeah. side yeah. except for passing by with Death Valley and going further south to Joshua right, Tree and right. avoiding them, really. So there's a lot that we have to learn. What are some of the places in the High Sierra that you recommend us going? Uh, well, it depends how much hiking you guys feel like doing. Mm. I always feel like none, but it's going <laughs> to not be a problem. So <laughs> so how much hiking are you willing to do? Yeah. Ah, you know, we did a 12-hour hike one day to try and find Brendan's drone, and I didn't think I was capable of that, but that Luckily, was mostly that was flat. flat. Yeah. <laughs> it was mostly Going flat up walking. is a big, different story. <laughs> yeah, so what kind of hikes? We're talking vertical? Are we talking uh, long walks? So we got uh, everything you could want, which Isn't is it? a pretty cool thing about the eastern side of the Sierra. So the escarpment here is very steep and very short. You know, we go from 4,000 feet in the Owens Valley to 14,000 feet at Mount Whitney in the space mm. of just a couple of miles. That's so dynamic. It's super dyna dynamic, and what's neat about it is almost every canyon that's that's on the east side has a road going into it. Oh, some of them really? are forest service roads, but some of them are paved roads. So, for okay. example, we've got a road that goes to a place called the Little Lakes Valley, and that mm. road is the highest paved road in California, and it goes all the way up to 10,700 feet. That's amazing. It drives you up Dang. that far. Paved, yeah. or is it something you need a nice four-wheel for? It's it's paved, so oh. in the summertime, when it's not snowed over, you can drive any car you want up that's there. Cool. And that takes you to this place, like I said, called the Little Lakes Valley. All you have to do is hike 15 minutes, 20 oh, minutes. That's brilliant. And you have that sounds perfect for us. <laughs> just, a, just a tremendous, tremendous view of these incredible 12 and 13,000-foot peaks uh, oh, that nice. sit at the head of this valley that's full of these small lakes and meadows. And if you go in July, everything's covered with wildflowers. Right, I was just right. going to ask you that. Awesome. Because awesome. wildflowers is something Brenda mm. and I have always wanted to do more of, and we never do. We did it last we did, not last no. year, the year before. I wouldn't year call year that last. very – we didn't successfully do it. It was I mean, one day. Yes, we I mean, were the there. <laughs> and it was just kind of okay before the shadow crept across the whole terrain. And I yeah. never found a good composition except for one where I shot the flower with the sun backlighting mm -hmm, it. But, you know, mm -hmm. I'm excited to really do it. And there's hikes that we can do here yeah. to get up there in the high mountain um, wildflowers. But driving up 10,000 feet sounds perfect. Yeah. So that place sounds amazing. What would be your second favorite place that you should say, hey, if you want to hike long, this is the one for you? So right now my favorite, favorite place in the high Sierra is Kings Canyon National Park. Oh, yeah. Okay. I haven't heard of that, actually. Why have I not heard of that? It's your last name. So teach me. <laughs> it was by my family. That's right. My family started the Kings Canyon uh, National Park. <laughs> well, send them my regards. They started really it years ago. <laughs> they forgot to tell me about it, but they did start it. So what is it about Kings Canyon? What do we need to know? 
So Kings, uh, it's actually two parks, Kings and uh, Sequoia. They're they're a oh, joint park. Okay. They're jointly managed. So everybody uh, knows about the Sequoia trees, right. which is why right. part of the park is famous. But what's amazing about Kings is it's sort of a twin sister to Yosemite. Oh. It has a lot of the same glacially sculpted, enormous Ooh. granite canyons, huge mountains. It doesn't have quite the uh, the same drama as Yosemite Valley, mm-hmm. but it does have some incredible, incredible features. Uh, and what's really beautiful about it is is it's part of the second largest roadless area in the contiguous United States. Oh. So there's basically, it's a, the, the John Muir Trail runs right through the spine of Kings Canyon, Sequoia. It's Mount where Mount Whitney is. But there's so much, there's this massive areas that don't have any trails to them where you just have to walk and know how to read a compass and a map and, wow. and pick a spot out and go for it. Um, and it's just if you like drama, if you like mountainy drama things, yes. you're, you know, well, what I really love about the Sierra is unlike places like the Himalaya or some of the Andes where you have the, maybe the mountains themselves are a little more dramatic. They're very pointy. They're covered with glaciers, but the landscapes around them are, are pretty barren, pretty dry. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Very rocky and dry. Yeah. 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 So what's really beautiful about the Sierra is up to about 11, uh, 10, 11,000 feet. We have a lot of meadows, a lot of trees, a lot of waterfalls and streams and things like that. So you can be in these wonderful, idyllic meadows full of wildflowers and, and reflecting pools and be looking up these 13,000, 14,000 foot peaks. <laughs> and so it's a, very, it's a very simple landscape. It just has a couple of features. Uh, and it's, a very, it's like if you asked a child to draw a cartoon of what a mountain landscape is like. <laughs> they, that's what they would that. draw. They would draw. <laughs> And and the, so the backcountry of Kings Canyon has that in you know in in droves. Every basin is is this picturesque. And what's so beautiful about it being so large and so spread out is you can get to places that literally no photographers are going to. And so it's a it's a great chance to uh, express your own personal vision of the planet without falling into these preconceived ideas of, mm-hmm. oh, well, I, I showed up at Mesa Arch and I have to take that Mesa Arch shot. Mm-hmm. Yep, here's my you, composition. So, yeah, exactly. Like, it's handed to you. everybody else. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I have a, two questions. One small, one big. Let's do the small one first. When you get into a situation, oh, I'm already thinking about my second question and I'm phrasing <laughs> it that way. Back up, back up, back up. Ease it in. <laughs> This, sec- this small question is about getting there. What are we kind of looking at? Is a 50-miler hike kind of adventure the best way to appreciate it? Personally, I think it is. So you go in, hike as far as you can, camp, and then hike further in and do a big old loop. huh? Where should we start the hike from? Where do you recommend? So if you guys just want to get your feet wet with this kind of backcountry uh, travel, yeah. um, one, of the, one of the best places is called Onion Valley. That's the trailhead. And then from there, you can do about a five-mile hike. And it's not necessarily an easy hike if you're not used to the altitude. But it's a five-mile hike, so you can get there without killing yourselves. It goes to a place called the Kearsarge Basin. And Kearsarge Basin. It's incredibly beautiful. It's sort of like an appetizer mm. before you take on the, the main course of uh, some real wilderness backcountry stuff. Um, but it's very beautiful. There's wonderful places to camp, and it, and it gives you a very nice sampling 
of what the High Sierra is like as seen on foot with your backpack on your back as opposed to from a car. Uh, right. At a and yeah, get that real intimate, you know, yeah, exposure to it, yeah. Yeah, and I like the idea of yeah. living in it for a while. Mm-hmm. It helps you with, by the last day, I can imagine that you get different ideas for a composition mm-hmm. after living in it and appreciating as you wake and walk and hike. You get a different idea than you would if you showed up and within hours had to make a decision. Yeah, yeah. So that leads me into my question that's longer. Before we take our first break of the podcast, I wanted to ask you, Josh, when you get into a situation like this, a place that's your favorite, it's very easy to be overwhelmed by the, um, the awesomeness. And where do you start with the composition that you know is going to be something you're totally stoked that you captured? It's everything you wanted. How do you handle that process from going, I'm arrived, now I need to capture that portfolio piece. Do you have any sort of ideas, tips for us to think about on handling the Joshua Cripps method for a great portfolio piece? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, man. So (laughs) my background is engineering, and I approach everything from a very systematic uh, way. And for me, every photo is, I'm trying to distill the most important parts of a landscape into that photo. And so when I'm on on the scene, what what I'm always doing, before I even take a picture, is I ask myself, what am I really drawn to here? Because it's so easy to throw on your 14 millimeter lens, go, hey, there's a mountain in the background. Let me find a foreground. Like, it doesn't even matter what it is. I just need a foreground element. So, you know, get close to it. I'll go vertical and blast these big details right in your face. Oh, and then I have to wait for sunset. Like, it's so easy to be prescriptive with this kind of photography. Uh, I don't like to do that. So what I do instead is I ask myself, what are the features in this landscape that are really speaking to me? Is it that peak over there? Is it the, these rocks over here? And then I ask myself why that is. Is it the shape of the peak? Is it the way that the light's bouncing off of it? Is it the way that that peak is being reflected in this pool to my right-hand side? And as I ask myself those questions more and more, that really helps me make decisions, not only about my composition. For example, if I'm incredibly drawn to a foreground, then yeah, I might throw on a wide angle so I can exaggerate it. But if I can't find a really beautiful foreground that's calling calling to me as much as some dramatic mountain, then I'm much more inclined to throw on the mid-range, the telephoto, and really try to tell a story of just the thing that's, that's speaking to me. Mm. And then that flows into my settings as well. Is there motion in the scene? Okay, well, how does the motion make me feel? What's the quality of the motion that I'm trying to capture that helps mm. me figure out what's the shutter speed I want to use? Is Am I feeling serene and dreamlike, well, then obviously I'm going to go long exposure. If I feel super energized and dramatic, maybe I'm going to go a little bit faster, try to capture some of those details. And and that process flows across all of the decisions that I make. So I'm really trying to, like I said, distill those important features, make a character of the landscape. And and that's my process for uh, creating a photo. I really like that. I really like how you're thinking about how it's speaking to you, where your emotions are, and then how are you going to best convey those emotions and what's awesome about it in your picture. The process of making the composition work for you that shows that motion, how do you do it? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that photography is a communication, you know, art. Yeah. You know, it is the art of communication and it's, and so I think picking out those things that do speak to you the most is one of those things that he's 
that, that that's why Josh was a great photographer because he finds those things that communicate to him and then he can in turn communicate those to others, you know, and it's visually, easy, which is great. It's easy to say that a picture, can, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? but in the same sense, it's limiting. You can muddy it up too. Because it'd be easier to tell them how it made you feel, but how do you take a picture mm-hmm. that lets them instantly know Joshua felt this was, had a lot of energy, a lot of motion. Mm-hmm. Look at how it's being portrayed through this image. That, that's a right. talent and an art in itself. Right, right. And it makes you wonder from a complete beginner, what would you do to convey that message? That's a mm. challenging thought. How do you make sure mm-hmm. that that motion rat is showing in your shot without just being a confusing distraction? Yeah, yeah, that's that's something that we uh, we run into or uh, that I run into all the time when I'm teaching is people know what they want to capture. They know what they're feeling. They know what they're drawn to in a scene. They just don't know how to translate it into photograph. So mm-hmm. I always try to get them to slow down and say out loud, "Tell me what you are seeing here." And, you know, they have a whole scene in front of them with thousands, literally thousands of elements. People will pick out three things. Oh, what I'm seeing? I'm seeing that beautiful mountain. I'm seeing that lake. I'm seeing that waterfall. Okay, boom, stop right there. That's, that's everything we need to make a great photo. <laughs> you know, how does that waterfall make you feel? Does it make you feel energized? Does it make you feel calm? And get them to think about, well, what, what really am I feeling? And then we go, okay, now, now you just need to understand the tools. How do you make a fast shutter speed versus slow shutter speed to convey whatever it is that you're trying to convey? And, and it's amazing because people really, they are, have the answers inside of them. They just don't, they just need the translation software. To turn it <laughs> yeah, into yeah, it. yeah. Well, that's how you can tell with someone who just picks up a camera for the first time. And you're like, oh my gosh, they have a really good talent for that. Or they're, they're natural, mm-hmm. naturally good at photography. And, you don't, and you're not really sure what that secret sauce is, right? They're not so entirely certain how they did it. Right. What they did right. Right. <laughs> it's interesting to think about it in the sense of composition for how you focus on your subject. What I'm seeing is the mountain, the waterfall. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, your composition is going to make sure that that waterfall is featured and obviously mm-hmm. what you're looking at. If it ends up being the thing that's off to the very far left of the screen, it's halfway cut off, it's not what they think you're looking right, at. They think right. you're looking at something else. So you have to balance that waterfall. And then the emotion I like how you said that with the shutter speed being fast or the shutter speed being slow, you can get a peace or an energetic and energy feeling mm-hmm. in your shot. And that's interesting thinking about beyond the composition balance, the emotions being told with your shutter. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think for me, it really goes through all of the, all of the aspects, the technical, the creative, the artistic aspects of a photograph. Cause you can tell a story with the colors that you choose, right? You can right. tell a story with what's in focus, what's not in focus. You can tell your viewer exactly what you want them to see. And for me, I think I've, I've become successful as a photographer if somebody looks at a photograph and they go, oh my gosh, that sky is so, it's got so much beautiful color and drama and warmth to it. And it makes me feel, it makes me feel warm. It makes me feel like if I was standing there, I would be exhilarated. And I go, well, that's exactly how I felt when I was standing there. Mm. That's what I want you to feel. So if I'm standing there and I'm feeling that and I go, well, I'm going to just for an artistic, you know, for whatever reason, I'm going to shoot at 2000 Kelvin and I'm going to turn this whole scene blue. And the viewer then goes, oh, this photo makes me feel cold. It makes me feel like I don't want to go there. I don't want to step into that. Yeah, it might be a, it might be an aesthetically a very cool looking photo, but I think to some extent, then I failed in my job 
as a photographer trying to communicate the what I was feeling in that moment taking the picture. That's fantastic. That's a great place for us to stop this first segment and take our first break. And then I'm really excited to hear more about Joshua's adventures going out with his camera. Yeah. We really respect and love his his photography and how great the images have looked afterwards. And we get a little hint as to how he gets there mm-hmm. with the balance, the composition, and everything. But I want to hear how it went to actually get to that shot <laughs> and some of the awesome behind-the-scenes stories. So we'll have, take yeah. a quick break, and we'll come back with Joshua Cripps. Cool. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, everybody. We are hanging out with Joshua Cripps. And as yeah. we do in segment two, hey, now it As we do in segment two. As we do in segment two, mm-hmm. we like to say, hey, if you're out there <laughs> camping, there's a bunch of other photographers and you're at a campfire and we're all having some last meals and hot cocoa and we're sharing photography stories, what are some of the stories that you think you would tell when it became your turn? One of my favorite stories is actually from before I was ever a photographer. Okay. Oh, cool. And it's part of the journey that uh, that led me into becoming a photographer. And really? This took place That's right. After college. Yeah, I was. Uh, so I studied it. Uh, I'll, get, I'll go through the, the context as quickly as I can. Okay. Uh, so I studied engineering in college and got really burned out on it. Mm-hmm. So after I graduated, I decided to go on a round the world trip because I'd never really done any traveling. Sounds awesome. And, uh, you know, long story short, I ended up in Mongolia. Nice. That's and... a long story short. <laughs> I ended up in Mongolia. Next I left sentence. into yeah. Mongolia. <laughs> wow. Step one, started traveling, dot, 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 then Mongolia. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Ulaanbaatar. As we all get there, you know you've been there before, guys. You know Ulaanbaatar. what happens. It's just... All, lo- all roads lead to Ulaanbaatar. Yada, 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 <laughs> Mongolia. Exactly. I mean, I don't even need to explain it because you know exactly how I got there. <laughs> Needless to say, the end. <laughs> and my arm was cut off, but that's not <laughs> yeah. part of the story. <laughs> that was not part of the story. So uh, so anyway, I was actually on my way to Europe by train. You went the wrong and, way. <laughs> yeah, longest possible way around. So I was on this great train journey. I had I was about halfway. I'd started in uh, Hanoi, Vietnam, wow. and I made it to Beijing. And then I was going from Beijing to Eastern Europe totally by train. That's and awesome. Yeah, it ended up being the total trip was something like 13,000 kilometers by train, <laughs> which was really, really fun. And it was so cheap to travel. Um, but that's sort of incidental to the story. The, the thing is, I, yeah. I ended up in Mongolia uh, because I had heard. It's one of the only places you could get a Russian visa. Oh, and, from hmm. someone in a bar or legitimately? <laughs> yeah, kind of sort of. Because when I went to the uh, when I went to the the Russian embassy in Beijing, this like incredibly incredibly beautiful redheaded Russian woman told me, awesome. "No, can can only get the Russian visa from home country. Must travel back to United States. Get oh. visa, then you can go." to Russia. Mm, and I had heard a little travel funny. rumor. No, hmm. you can actually get one in Mongolia. Crazy. So I, yeah, I jumped on the train, went to Mongolia, and I ended up at this travel agency. And the woman working there said, well, yeah, I have a friend who works in the embassy here. I have a friend. And, you know, if we, if we organize everything that you need for the visa and uh, he's working the day that I bring the stuff there and he's in a good mood, you know, <laughs> that maybe, just maybe, you can end up with a Russian visa. So she goes, here are all the things uh, that you need in order to get a Russian visa. One, you need an invitation into the country. Well, thankfully, we can provide you with that for the low price of 
twenty dollars. Okay. Here's an invitation. Then, the redhead said you can come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The second thing you need is Russian state-approved health insurance, and fortunately, we sell that upstairs. <laughs> This is really sounding like someone's backyard, like garage they're selling stuff out of. Oh, man, this is this is the most hilarious beast that getting experience. So, so you need that. You need to have uh, an itinerary for when you're in the country that the, the hotels you stay at will stamp this itinerary off to show that you've actually stayed there. Oh, okay. And she said, you know, don't worry about that too much. As long as you have an itinerary, you can fake it when you actually get into Russia. But we'll write an itinerary for you, no problem. Then you also need a train ticket or a plane ticket or a bus ticket or whatever you got. You got to have a train ticket into the country and you have to have a train ticket out of the country. Uh, and she said, so you go down to the train station and they can help you out. So I, I took a taxi over there and somehow wonder of all wonders, there was one Mongolian woman in the train station who spoke perfect English. Oh, wow. And I, yeah, I explained the whole situation to her, and obviously she'd been through this rigmarole before, and she goes, well, we can sell you a, a train ticket from this train station, but we can't sell you a train ticket. You know, if you want to leave Russia into Europe, we don't own or operate trains on those lines. You know, those are 5,000 kilometers away. So <laughs> we can't sell you a ticket there, but for a small fee, of course, we can write you a receipt that makes it look like you have a train ticket out of the country. <laughs> Wow, this is getting so, shadier and shadier. <laughs> so, so, okay, you basically want you know a, a payoff to write me this receipt, and I think I think the amount that she quoted me once you convert it to the U.S. Uh, was something like seventy-five cents. <laughs> Which, You're like, I, oh, time, gee, I don't know. That's a, that's a that's quite a fee. You got yeah, quite think, a deal. <laughs> like, can you can you give me that in Vietnamese dong? How many dong is that? <laughs> Seventy million dong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, only 70 million? Okay. Which is 89 cents. Did you take check? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And so, so, did any point did you get knocked out, put a bag over your head, and you had to go to the next place without knowing the location? <laughs> oh, thankfully, that, that part was all above board. And here's the best bit. She goes, she goes where do you think that you're going to leave Russia from, and where do you think you're going to go? So, well, I'll probably leave from St. Petersburg, and I don't really know where I'm going to go, but Latvia is the next nearest country, so I'll probably go to Latvia. So she writes on the receipt, you know, you know, like plane tickets, train tickets, they all say going from this city in this country to this city in this mm -hmm. other country. Right. And this, this train ticket just said from St. Petersburg to Latvia, the end. <laughs> just this yeah. city, he'll enter somewhere in Latvia. <laughs> uh, boy, I hope this works. So anyway, I take all this stuff back to the, uh, the, the travel agency. And then, of course, you have to pay the visa fee, which I think at the time was 180 bucks. Mm. So oh, take all this stuff back. Expensive. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty pricey. Um, and she goes, okay, great. You know, I'm going to take this to my friend. Hopefully, it's all going to work out. Come back in 14 days, and we'll see. Come back in 14 days? <laughs> Welcome so to Mongolia. You'll be here for Mongolia. a while. <laughs> yeah, like, what am I going to do in the next 14 days? So uh, on the train in from Beijing to Ulaanbaatar, I'd met a couple of Israeli guys, and we decided, hey, let's put together a horse trek through the Mongolian countryside. Are you serious? That and there are two amazing. ways you could do this. Yeah, there are two ways you could do this. You could pay an outfitter about 60 bucks a day to manage the whole thing for you. Mm -hmm. Or you could try to organize it yourself. And we calculated that it would cost us about $11 a day to do it that way. Wow. So being 
being a bunch of broke 23 year olds, of course, that, well, let's go let, with that one. Let's go that way. <laughs> we, uh, we, we ended up wrangling eight people total for this trip. Nice. And we, we got a taxi to this big market so that everybody could buy clothing and, and supplies. And we sent a couple of people off to buy food. And we ended up with these two huge gunny sacks, one that was full of things like pasta and rice and one that was full of things like Snickers and Jolly Ranchers. Why am I, why is City Slickers coming to my mind right now? I don't I don't know why that Because he doesn't belong in a horse. He's gonna have to go there for eleven days in the middle of a Mongolian wilderness that he knows obviously really, really poorly. This is awesome. So, so it's uh we were in the capital He does have Jolly Ranchers though, don't forget. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You have Jolly Ranchers. He can bribe yeah. anybody. Um it's currency. And it's 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 sweltering in the capital city, you know, it's mm. in the mid nineties every day. And so we didn't even bother to check the weather out where we were going. We basically jumped in this van that a guy from the hostel helped us organize. He drove us eight hours to this little tiny town called Uyanga and said, Welp, see you later <laughs> in Mongolian because we couldn't talk to the guy. Uh, here you so go. So we hop out, the eight of us idiots, in this tiny little town <laughs> in Mongolia. And we go, let's, uh, let's find a house that has a lot of horses. <laughs> we walk up to the, this little this little farm. Uh, is, you know, it's a family. It's a mom, a dad, uh, three brothers, and one younger sister. And they've got tons and tons of these Mongolian ponies and yaks and stuff roaming around their yard. And so then through a process of sign language, pointing <laughs> at math, and and trying to explain where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do. <laughs> We rented, we rented, I think it was 11 ponies. Uh, ponies eight, are small, right? Did you ride a pony? Tiny, they're tiny. <laughs> These things are, they're like, I don't know how many hands it is, but they got to be three and a half feet tall at the shoulder. <laughs> they're, You're they're walking idiots. faster than them. Oh, but they have, you put they have the, walk with it. They, oh my gosh. They have an attitude that is insane. <laughs> only about half, halfway domesticated. So... <laughs> So we, rent a, so far. we rent 11 of these ponies, uh, and we also hire the three brothers as our guides. Nice. And, and our goal, we had read, okay, a Mongolian pony can travel 20 to 30 miles every single day, every single day, just day in, day out. Or they can go up to 100 miles in one day, but then they have to rest for a couple days. And so we wanted to go from this town, Uyanga, to this other town called Setzerleg, where we could take a train back. And they were about 150 miles apart. So mm. we thought, okay, this is easily doable in a week. No problem. Well, no, none of us had ever really factored in uh, the, the, into the equation that nobody knew how to ride a horse. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, you so, pulled it back. I mean, well, you get easy. on. And you, it's seen <laughs> all the time on TV, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we jumped on the back and yelled, giddy up, and they don't do anything. <laughs> you got to speak Mongolian. Speak Mongolian, and you have to say "choo choo" as you kind of kick the horse <laughs> in the haunches. Yes, they, they did not listen to us at all. And so the first day, I think we made it four miles on the first day. He <laughs> could still see the house. <laughs> <laughs> and then it started raining. And on the second day, we're like, okay, I think we got the hang of this. And we made it seven miles. Oh, my in, God. 
in the pouring rain, and nobody had brought any waterproof clothing because it was 95 degrees. Oh yeah, the second day we made it seven miles, and I think the third day we made it like another eight miles before a hailstorm turned us oh. back. And we ended up sheltering. We found this this family out in the countryside, and they let us shelter in their yurt for a couple of hours. <laughs> Shaking their head the whole time. What oh, yeah. Absolutely. This white person. <laughs> it's like idiots. So then the, finally, the, the, uh, the, so at the end of the, the second day, we, um, we looked at our food rations and went, hey, I guess we probably should have thought about how many, or how many meals eight people will eat in seven days. Oh, my gosh. Because That's a lot of food. We don't have anywhere near enough food to make it seven days. <laughs> so starting on the, the third day, we started rationing the food. So we basically would have... Uh, a, couple, a couple of cookies or a Snickers bar for breakfast, no lunch, and then at dinner we would eat a bowl of rice or a bowl of macaroni with some cheese powder on it. <laughs> How much hiking did you have to do with the horse that was resistant that you had to pull behind you? That's actually a perfect question because the next day, the next day was Saturday, and none of the Israelis were willing to ride. You know, because they're not Sore. allowed to do not allowed to do work on Saturdays. Oh, I can't, see Sabbath and I stuff. get all the rules like you can't ride in a car, you can't do work, you can't can't do a lot of stuff. And so that day we basically just walked another seven miles pulling our horses along. <laughs> so at this point, yeah, <laughs> we're four days. We're four days into a seven day trip and we've made it about twenty five of the hundred and fifty oh, miles. My gosh. <laughs> So we en- we ended up at that day. It was actually a beautiful, sunny, warm day. It was so nice. We ended up at a lake, and there there was another group with a translator, a French group. They had a Mongolian translator, and so we finally were able to speak to our three guides. Whoa! You the haven't trans- been speaking to them. You just kind of yeah. sign language still. Sign language, you know. When we told them, <laughs> we told them, you know, we told them we want to go to. We would point to the map, Setzer Leg, and we would put, hold up our hands and point out. You know, hold up seven fingers to indicate seven nights, and my, I'm going to sleep seven times. <laughs> In a lot oh, of Asian countries, yeah. a lot of Asian cultures, I don't want to generalize too much, but it's rude to say no, right? They want to agree with you. Uh, and so they, they agreed with us, even though they had no idea what we were saying. Oh, my gosh. And so finally, we, through this translator, we were able to talk to them. Wow. And when they found out what we actually wanted to do, they flipped out. <laughs> <laughs> They're all wide-eyed. What the blinky blink in Mongolian? Yeah. Are you out of your <laughs> freaking mind? <laughs> you know, this lake that we were at was the farthest any of them had ever been from home. Oh my gosh. Wow. So they're, what the heck have we gotten ourselves into? And <laughs> so at, at this point, the fact that our guides don't want to go any farther, they don't know where we even wanted to go in the first place, we <laughs> are rationing our food like, uh, I think I think I stopped, not to get too graphic, but I stopped pooping on the fourth day and had no nothing for the rest of the entire trip. Uh, so we decided, you know, maybe it's smarter just to turn around mm. and go back where we, we came from. So we decided to do that. We, we head our way back. It's Now it's really cruisy because we only have to go seven, eight miles a day on these ponies and half the time we're just pulling them along. Uh, <laughs> of this great adventure, we keep running across these nomadic herdsmen who would bring us these steaming hot bowls of uh of yak's milk or fermented mare's milk um oh, that'll help you take care of number two yeah so at the 
part about that is we were, we, all, we were all freezing cold all the time because it was 50 degrees and raining and we didn't have any warm Oh my gosh. So oh, we'd, get to the end of the, we'd get to the end of the day and all of us would huddle inside the tent while one guy who had thought to bring a waterproof jacket would be out cooking dinner for us. So <laughs> I was climbing out of the tent at one point and I knocked over the little carafe of hot yak milk. Oh. And it and it spilled into my shoes and oh. spilled into my wet shoes. And so then over the course of about the next week or so, I had yak milk curdling, fermenting oh, sour in my wet sneakers. And it was the worst thing I've ever smelled in my entire life. In fact, uh, later, later on in the train trip, as I was on my way through Russia, uh, a guy who was sharing my train compartment grabbed a plastic bag held it out to me, pointed to my shoes, pinched his nose, and said the only word I think he knew in English, which was, sorry. And he's like, you got to put those shoes in this bag. <laughs> it felt so terrible passing oh us out sorry. of the train compartment here. Uh, so anyway, we, uh, we, finally, we finally, after seven days, we make it back to the town of Uyanga, and and none of us have had enough to eat. In fact, it turns out that I lost twelve pounds that week. <laughs> how cold it was, how little we were eating. So, and, and our plans are totally shot because we thought we we're going to be able to take a train from the one town back. Right. We're back in the town where we started at. There's no public transportation whatsoever. So we're waiting around this general store. We're trying to figure out is there a bus that comes through. We're drawing maps. We're trying to spell everything out. You know, and by general store, I mean a, a place that sold literally three things, potatoes, onions, and cookies. <laughs> <laughs> the cookies came from somewhere. Someone delivers them. <laughs> yeah. So while we're sitting there, like trying to, trying to figure out how we're going to get back to the capital city, this husband and wife pull up in this old Soviet van. <laughs> and we stop them, and we go, we, we, we draw a map, and we say, can you take us, you know, we're here, can you take us to Ulaanbaatar, and we fan out. I think we gave him 120 bucks in cash, U.S. currency, which is it was something like four months of typical salary. Whoa, wow, they're awesome. probably just like wide-eyed, like Whoa. I'd pay it. <laughs> yeah. So can you? I, I, I've gone through this scenario in my mind so many times back in the U.S. <laughs> if a if a foreigner walked up to me and gave me four months' salary to drive <laughs> them to a city eight hours away, <laughs> would I do it? Yeah, dude, I would. Like, here's 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 fifteen thousand dollars. Please take me to. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, get, get in, get in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd be wondering, like, what's in their bag? Do they have a dead body? Are they drugs? <laughs> Am like, I gonna get, gonna get this money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, luckily in our case, we were just eight obviously dopey tourists who need. <laughs> oh my god! All in your twenties, everyone just. Oh yeah, all in our our early twenties. And along the way, we stopped at this uh, this roadside diner, and the only thing that I could read on the menu, because I basically sort of learned to transcribe the, they use the Cyrillic text, Mm. um, which is, it's, you know, you can translate the letters pretty easily, and so you can sound sound stuff out. And the only thing I could read on the menu was goulash. (laughs) And, okay, you know what that is, bring me goulash. And so they brought out eight plates of sheep goulash for everybody. And it was genuine, genuinely one of the best meals I've ever eaten in my entire week, <laughs> not eating anything. So eventually make it back to the capital city, and I go to the uh, the tourism agency, and sure enough, I got my Russian visa. 
and onward I go. <laughs> wow. Into. But that, that experience, it was so, you know, you could tell it's burned so strongly into my memory. And what frustrated me at the time was the photos that I have from it, they suck. You know, mm. they're, they don't convey the story of uh, what happened. And so that was one of the first moments that I really thought about how can I be a better storyteller and how can I better show the people that I care about what's happening to me in a meaningful way. And that really got me thinking about photography. Hmm. <laughs> wow. I was really, really curious how the heck <laughs> this was some sort of origin story of your photography career. And I thought this instead was a story of your twin brother who passed away in Mongolia. But no, this is actually you survived. Holy cow. <laughs> the story of the Yak's Milk Sneakers by <laughs> Joshua Cripps. <laughs> you know, surprisingly, it's not a bestseller. I think that title is... Uh, <laughs> people off. <laughs> oh my gads you know i was waiting for the jolly ranchers to come into play somewhere as a currency but no it didn't work <laughs> out you guys had that jolly rancher uh, ration later on in the week or you finish it all in the first few days you know what i the thing for me was the chocolate uh i didn't get into the jolly ranchers that much but i do remember one night very specifically being so cold and so frustrated that i crawled into my sleeping bag with a mars bar and I just sat there eating this Mars bar as I fell asleep halfway, just, you know, like nibbling on this thing, the chocolate dripping down my chin and being, you know, so happy and brushing my teeth with a Mars bar. And that's the way I ended the day. <laughs> oh, man. That's an amazing, amazing story. To be 20 again oh and gosh, make those stupid decisions. <laughs> like, I'm going to go to this place I've heard of called Death Valley. And I heard yeah. I could just drive any you know, rental car in there and I'll be fine. I'm going to go see Racetrack Playa. I'm going to go walk around and run around that place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have enough. When is it, July? Let's go in July. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is enough water for me for days, honestly. Normally, when I'm back home in my air-conditioned house, I have maybe a few glasses of water. So this will be enough for One the whole jug, time. totally enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gallon, gallon of water. Wow. <laughs> what a story. And everything you did that was completely illegitimate Mongolian back-channel visa gaining of Russian... I mean, when you left Russia, did you leave and go to Latvia from St. Petersburg? Did you arrive at X latvia <laughs> So, actually, I, I didn't. I ended up going to Lithuania, mm. uh, and I, I thought I was going to be in big trouble because my visa expired uh, just before we crossed the border. Mm. Like, like we, we crossed the border at like 1 a.m., and oh. the visa expired you know, at midnight, <laughs> an hour before that. But thankfully, the the customs guys they, they didn't give a crap. They're like, yeah, come on through. We we don't really care. But so I ended course. up in Lithuania, which was sort of another story. I ended up living there for nine months, and uh, that's a whole wow. that's a whole other can Did of worms. You meet some man. girl there. I mean, how do you end up living there for nine months? Yeah. So uh, the short of it is uh, that's the first. Uh, so I, I the train dropped me off in Vilnius, which is the capital of Lithuania. That's the first European city I'd ever been to. Oh. And. Have you guys been to Europe? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. I lived in Europe, and Brendan went to Europe for in Neil. Uh, oh, that's right. You said you're in Amsterdam mm -hmm. or in Holland. Yes. Uh, you, so you know that feeling, that first European city you see with the, the classic architecture and the yeah. cobblestone oh, street. Yeah. Yeah. Instant love at first sight? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, love at first sight. Love at first sight. And that's exactly what it was for me. Vilnius, uh, I just fell in love with the cobblestones and the winding, crazy streets yeah. that started out yeah. a bus, you know, as wide as a bus and then narrowed down so they could barely fit a bicycle at the end. <laughs> it didn't hurt, of course, that the Lithuanian girls are 
crazy beautiful. <laughs> and at that time, not so much anymore. But at, yeah, yeah. At that time, <laughs> being from California was like being from Mars. So <laughs> I was a specimen. I you was were a specimen. Loved. He's from where? <laughs> California? He's so exotic. Oh, man. Oh, well, oh, we, days, guys. Days. we have to have you back for many other reasons, but oh nothing gosh. else to hear more of this amazing world travel. Seriously. So I can't wait to hear more. Let's hear one more of your stories before we call it quits with a short, short, short gear time, because <laughs> this has been fantastic. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I, uh, I'm a pretty quiet guy most of the time, but for whatever reason, I love talking about photography and travel sure, so sure. it really well we're digging it no we're uh, loving it right so I'll, I'll tell you an actual photography story now and i'll try to keep it a little bit shorter uh this is from the past summer in king's canyon national park i was mm. doing a backpacking trip right on and uh basically i wanted to go to this place called the gardner basin which is pretty far into the backcountry it's uh it's totally off trail uh the last you know, last part of the, the trip to get there. Um, and there's no, there's no real direct way you have to, it's uh, unless you're a crazy fit, it's a minimum of two days hiking to get in there. Mm. You have to go over about three of these 12,000 foot passes. And, um, I want to tell you about one day specifically from this trip, because my favorite thing to do in life pretty much is photograph monsoon thunderstorms in the Sierra Nevada. Oh, okay. <laughs> So my whole point, this is a five-day trip, the whole point was get to the Gardner Basin and photograph thunderstorms. Now, that always sounds cool in theory, but when you're actually in the thunderstorm hiking, <laughs> the worst idea I've ever had in my life. Were you still, so, wait, worst idea? Wasn't it going away from Ulaanbaatar, <laughs> the group of Israelis that had no idea? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Second worst. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I, I woke up this, this morning, um, of the trip, beautiful blue skies, you know, this is pretty typical thunderstorm behavior. It's gorgeous in the mornings, clouds mm -hmm. start to build up, you know? So after I've been hiking a couple of hours, I can see just dark brooding clouds exactly where I want to go, you know? And, and the, the logical, rational, sane part of me is going, why don't you go back to the other place where there was, you know, sun shining and these wonderful meadows and all this beautiful stuff. And the photographer is going, no, you have to go into the storm because you came here to photograph thunderstorms mm -hmm. over this basin. You've got to do it. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, you're going to hate yourself. So the <laughs> uh, famous last words, right? Like anything for the shot. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I jumped off, uh, I jumped off the trail and started doing the cross country hike up towards this basin. And the whole time, the, the thing that's driving me is I think when I get to this pass, this cross-country pass, and I look into the basin, I'm going to see backcountry Shangri-La. I'm going to see meadows and wildflowers and waterfalls and you know, happy little chipmunks scurrying around, all this cool stuff. And when I actually got to the pass, what I saw was uh, just this lunar, totally lunar landscape. Mm. <laughs> full of a, a, a huge basin full of talus uh, with sort of some stark-looking lakes dotted among the talus. And... I honestly couldn't even see at that point a flat spot to pitch a tent. So I'm, I'm starting to really wow. think to question this decision, especially because the thunderstorm is getting more and more tense. There are these huge mammatus clouds building up above the mountains above mm -hmm. me, and I'm the high point on the ridge. I can, you know, the lightning flashes are going off to the south of me, and I can hear the thunder claps, and I'm going, I got to make a decision. I got to get off of this ridge. So I jumped down into the basin because, again, that was my goal. I got to photograph this basin under monsoon thunderstorms 
even though it looks like just talus and this moonscape. It looks like total garbage. So I walk about a mile through the basin. It takes me 90 minutes to go across all the, all the boulders. And I get to the far end of the basin. And as I get there, the clouds to the west start breaking up. And a little bit of sunlight just starts to percolate down into the basin. And the clouds keep lifting, keep breaking up. Uh, and when I turn around behind me, the ridge where I had just come from, it was just getting smashed. I mean, you could see this wall of rain coming in and smashing uh, where I was standing. Uh, but to the west, it was still breaking up. More and more sun was coming into the basin. And all of a sudden, like somebody flipped the switch, direct sunbeam came in, hits all the granite, this amazing shark tooth looking Ooh. peak with uh, this wall of rain above it. And this rainbow just starts blazing. Oh. <laughs> and, and this is one of the most intense rainbows I've ever seen in my life. And then it starts to form this double rainbow. And the longer I'm looking at this thing, uh, I'm looking at the primary bow. And it looks weird. It looks really, really weird for some reason. It's got this band of yellowish green underneath uh, the, oh. the spectrum. You know, so it goes red, orange, yellow, uh Green, blue, indigo, violet, green. Huh. <laughs> now, like, are my eyes playing tricks on me? What the heck is going on here? So I uh, took out my, my 70 to 200, and I zoomed in on the most intense part of the rainbow. Uh, I took a picture, and it wasn't – actually, turns out it wasn't, wasn't a band of green. That was just the most intense part. In fact, it was every single color of the spectrum of the rainbow – replicated over and over and over and over so again tiling basically yeah so so there was a, a primary bow and then underneath it was a secondary rainbow and underneath that was a tertiary rainbow and underneath right. that was a rainbow and i was totally gobsmacked i'd never seen this before i ended up uh, i looked it up after i got out of the trip and it's something called super numerary bands it only occurs when the sunlight is being refracted through water droplets of a very, very specific small size. Wow. You know, and I thought this is just the most magical thing because you guys are landscape photographers. You spend a lot of time yes. outside. Mm. I'm sure that you photographed a lot of rainbows. Yeah. Right? Well, sure, and, all the time. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Faroe Islands is nonstop in Iceland. We saw rainbows every day, but that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's the same. I'm like, okay, I photographed a lot of rainbows. I've never seen this before, and I love it when that happens, when you think you have a good handle mm. on what's possible, and then Mother Nature comes along and goes, hey, you know, I've yeah, got a few tricks. Yeah. <laughs> you still know 10%. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm sitting here happy as a clam, uh, just running around like a crazy person if clams could run around like crazy people. <laughs> rolling yeah. around like a clam. Rolling around like a crazy clam, and... Uh, having so much fun and then you know the rainbow it just stuck around and stuck around and stuck around it got bigger and bigger and bigger as the mm. sun went down and it ended up staying around for 45 minutes and to the to the point where i i was bored you know like there's only so many competitions <laughs> <you> can, <laughs> so much rainbow you can take and so I, I started to wander around the rest of the basin to see what i could find and and this is where that sort of shangri-la thing that i was looking for it just appeared so there was this bench that I couldn't see from the ridge line, and where that bench dropped off, below that were all the meadows, all the streams, the reflecting pools. So I wandered around, um, and as the sun and the cloud, the clouds kept breaking up, the sun kept shining in, and it would spotlight all these cool peaks. Uh, and eventually, it was lighting up the clouds, and I found these beautiful infinity pools, these series of about 
four infinity pools sitting on the edge of this bench. Uh, and so you'd have the, the pond and then the rock would simply fall off. Oh. And so there was no, you know, that effect where the, the reflection comes straight up out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just spectacular to see in this huge peak called Mount Gardner reflected in this perfect mirror infinity pool. Uh, and then of the, uh, the sunset that night just exploded. I mean, it was reds and oranges and yellows and so vibrant, so beautiful under this, you know, perfect glassy infinity pool. And, uh, you know, like, and I know this happens, uh, for you guys as well, but it, that actually induces this, you know, the dopamine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Start to just get so, so energized it's and so jazzed. High. Yeah. Yeah. Facing high and you feel so much joy and so much happiness and then you get to a point where you're almost uh, overloaded, <laughs> right? And then, and then it just faded at that point. And it was like this massive release of all that built up emotion, all that intense, you know, and so you drop into this incredible calm uh, that comes like, this is one of the most magical three mm -hmm. hours. <laughs> you know, when you push, when you have those doubts and you push through it and you push through what is genuinely an uncomfortable situation when it's hailing on you and there's lightning going off and you're very exposed and you don't know that you're going to get an outcome. Mm. You just see the potential for an outcome, right? but you have to, you have to put in the risk to get there. Right. And then it pays off. And Dang. I mean, that, that for me, I think what is really what landscape photography is about is having those experiences and being in those amazing places with those uh, light conditions. So, yeah, for sure. That is that is in my top probably three uh, moments ever as a landscape mm. photographer. Yes. And Holy moly. <laughs> we have mm. our moments like that that we remember and we're thinking of right now as you mm -hmm. describe that just that dopamine, the amazing feeling and that just that knowledge that you go to your deathbed <laughs> thinking about how amazing that moment was. And it's just by being there, even though you said it was probably your second most stupid decision to make going to this area in a thunderstorm. Mm. <laughs> but you captured something freaking outstanding. So wow. I, this has been, it, it's making me wish it wasn't stupid winter I know, right I'm now. Just, I'm cursing the weather right now. I'm like, dang you, I want to go out right now. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. <laughs> I'm brought to such a point of excitement that I feel like I could buy and do anything so that I can get out there and join you in these stories. So let's just take a short short gear time. Let's just add it in here right now. Mm -hmm. No break. Kay. Let's just hear some information that we know we want to know. We want to hear from Josh on how we can do some of these things that he's doing. And I'll let Brandon take it away and then we'll say goodbye to Josh because this has been awesome. Yeah. So I'm just curious, Josh, about your gear, the setup, the, your basic setup, like what camera body you use. And then when you talk about your zoom lens, what is your go-to lens? Right now, my primary camera that I'm shooting with is a Nikon D850. Okay. And uh, I'm... I'm, I think I'm probably going to make a slow transition to the new mirrorless Nikons oh, that just okay. came out. Okay. Uh, and the reason for that, I mean, don't get me wrong, the D850, I think, is the most perfect camera that I've personally ever mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. I love the way that it handles. I love the way that it feels. And the images it produces are, are ridiculous. Um, but the the allure of this mirrorless body, uh, you know, they just came out with a, a fifth, or excuse me, a 14 to 30 F4 lens mm -hmm. for this mount. That is, it's tiny. It's a tiny lens, and it's a full 14 millimeters on mm. the, on a full frame sensor. Mm -hmm. So now, for for all the hiking and backpacking I do, that that's pretty appealing. But for the right. time being, 
I'm using the 850. Um, and my two favorite lenses, uh, three favorite lenses to shoot with. Okay. Uh, number one is a 70 to 200. Yeah. I love shooting that lens for landscapes because it really lets you pick out little vignettes that are speaking to you mm-hmm. in a scene, right? Like wide angle, don't get me wrong. Love a good grand landscape uh, for just sucking your viewer into the frame and making them feel like they're standing there. There's nothing yeah, better. Yeah. But they don't leave a lot to the imagination, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're not really mysterious lenses. It's you say, hey, look, here's everything that was happening. Right, right. <laughs> you <know>? And more. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I love the telephoto because you can go, look at this cool little detail. Mm-hmm. Look at this little part of the story. Not not just to smack you in the face, grandiose thing, yeah. but what's more, maybe something more subtle that's going on. So I love that. Uh, Real I quickly, do love before you jump onto the next lens, I got to ask you this question because I've been thinking about it as an inexperienced long lens user. Mm. I have done a lot of astro and wide angle landscape, and so I have very little experience using anything but a seventy to three hundred, mm-hmm. and just whatever that rental came as is what I took. It has a, it has a variable f stop, and so I'm thinking looking into seventy two hundred. Do you find yourself in your landscape shots needing and requiring an f2.8 or is one of those f4s even better? What would I be looking at and considering? Mm. For me personally, I I ditched my f2.8 and I got the f4 and I've never been happier. Oh, uh, awesome. That's what I needed to hear. They're lighter, yeah. right? They're much lighter, much smaller. I, I personally never shoot landscapes at f2.8. Um, I mean, for telephoto, for astrophotography, that's a different story. Right. Uh, but shooting, you know, I'm not shooting a, a telephoto 200 millimeter landscape at f2.8. I'm I'm probably at f16 if I'm trying to get, uh, right. you know, even if I'm trying to get separation, if you're at 200 millimeters, you can get that at f4, f5, 6, even f8 yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Depending on how close you are to your primary subject is enough to blur out your background. So, yeah, I definitely love that the 70 to 200 f4 uh, is my is my little baby awesome i was Love curious that about cool. that because i know that for portrait photography it's fun to have the f2.8 mm-hmm. but i just thought in the rental that i'm doing this weekend for the lunar eclipse i went for the f2.8 but i was thinking you know what i bet i don't need this mm. in my bag when i go for landscape so thanks for answering that question cool. josh yeah. joshua approved dishes and made f4 that's what i'm gonna do teresa you and i need a telephoto lens let's do an f4 <laughs> One of our listeners is getting a new telephoto lens as well, and I hope that she's listening right now. Nice. So then what was that next lens you were going to say, Josh? So, of course, the 14 and 24 Nikon lens is mm. the, the super classic. Um, and I do love shooting wide-angle landscapes with that. But there are a couple things that I don't like about it. Uh, well, that's not to say – that's not true. There's things that make it not ideal for mm-hmm. backpacking. One is the size. The mm-hmm. fact that it weighs as much as like a Volkswagen um, <laughs> and the fact that it doesn't take filters. So oh, it's another one of those. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do. Lo- <laughs> I love that lens. Um, but maybe my, uh, maybe a more versatile lens that I always bring with me is a Nikon 18 to 35. Okay. It's obviously not quite, it's not quite as wide, but it's crazy sharp. It weighs nothing. It's uh, it's inexpensive for a good quality lens, and it's a 77 millimeter front thread. Oh, yeah. So nice. you can slap all your filters on there. So sometimes I debate when I'm really trying to go light on a backpacking trip, I leave that 14 behind hmm. because, man, that's that's two and a half pounds of weight, Ooh, which is yeah. that's a lot of yak's milk. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to have too much you yak's milk, to. otherwise, it'll spill and get in your sneakers. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you're you sound like you were saying three lenses. Should I put you down for those two as your main favorites? Uh, yeah. So those are, those would be the three: the the seventy to two hundred, the fourteen to twenty four, um, and then 18 the eighteen to thirty five okay. are my three faves. Okay, maybe I just cool. missed that discussion on the eighteen to thirty five. Yes. Gotcha. Sweet. Fantastic. Cool. Any other questions, Brandon? No, man, I'm good. I'm. Uh, that was wow. That was awesome. I know. I really want great more stories. of the stories because yeah. <laughs> you've had some great world traveler stories, and this will be fun. I hope someday I am at a campfire with all night to listen to your stories because that. I was be just fantastic. gonna say, yeah, you guys got to come out. We'll sit around the totally. campfire for real and. Oh. and yeah. Tell some stories. You better not make that as a uh, quasi just polite offer because next time we're in the High Sierra area, we'll be texting you saying, hey, what are you doing, man? Let's get out. Let's yeah, get out and do yeah. some awesome photography. Show yeah, us where it, we man. need to be. Sweet. You awesome. Bet. Well, Josh, I mean, people who don't know mm. you have no idea how to follow you. Where were some places online that you want to direct them so they can learn more about your work and follow your stuff? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, my favorite place to send people is my website. Uh, because that's where you can get a sense of all the stuff that I do. Mm. Plus, if you want to look at, you know, as landscape photographers, we like to look at photos and, <laughs> yeah. and be, mm. live in those photos. And you can see nice large versions on my website. Instagram is great. Mm. But, I mean, when you're looking at a photo that's a 600 pixels across, like right, you don't get to right. well in all the details. No, so, I do hate that about Instagram. Mm. Yeah, so my, my website is uh, simply my name, joshuacrips.com. And, uh, I mean, I do I do love Instagram. I love to be able to create community and interact with people and you can find me on there joshua cripps photography is the handle okay all right awesome thanks josh this has been really fun talking to my you. my pleasure guys yeah it's been a great great conversation we we didn't expect to go so long it's been so great you have definitely yeah. given us a lot of time you've been very generous and we have loved every minute of it absolutely so thanks for hanging with us today josh and everybody who's listening we really appreciate you guys thanks for following photog adventures and we will be back to hear more about what happened for nine months out there in Lithuania. <laughs> and who did he meet and why was she so important to him? And then what happened? Why did he leave nine months later? <laughs> so thanks again, Josh. Thanks, Brendan. And we'll see you guys next week. Yep. See you guys. But yeah, man, thanks so much for taking time with us. We had a blast. Guys. Yeah. yeah, this was great. This is one of the, to be honest, I, I think this is one of the better uh, this is my first experience. I haven't I haven't had a chance to listen to your podcast yet, but I think it's one of the better hosted podcasts about photography. Uh, so we'll start listening, doing... man. We've got you at a hundred plus episodes to catch up to. <laughs> that is a huge <laughs> compliment. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. Yeah. I am going to have that since I'm still recording over here. <laughs> I'm going to put that at the end of the whole podcast when they get to the rest of the music and they hear a little silence. Then we'll put on a little bleep. This is one of the best podcasts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm glad.